Why are we talking about Bitcoin right now? It seems like it's more popular now than ever. My aha moment when it comes to like Bitcoin was when, I know it sounds crazy, but I was one of those people who really thought that the bank had little box with like my money in it, you know, like, yeah. and then when I realized, wait, they don't have that. It's just like some online number. Oh. What was it for you? So just imagine, you know, you had $100,000 worth of gold and now it's time to leave. What are you going to do? Yeah, you, you, everybody. Yeah, right. You're going to carry it to the airport and just tell them, hey, I'll see you guys later. I'm taking this with me. Everybody knows. It, it just sounds crazy. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Girl in the Verse, the video podcast, the place to be if you are new to Web3, curious about crypto, but you don't want to get too technical. I'm your girl. My name is Melina. I've been a content creator for over 10 years and now I am dedicating my time and asking people all the questions so we can better understand how the blockchain will change our lives. But before we get started, I do have a small favor to ask, like, subscribe, comment down below. This not only helps the YouTube algorithm know that you love this type of content, but it allows me, the content creator, to provide more of what you want. I want to be able to get you guys the best of the best on the show. So if you like, subscribe, and comment, I know that you want to see more of this. Now, today, I am joined by Justin Orkney. He's been in Bitcoin mining for a few years now, and he's also working in the electric utility focused on demand response and new technologies. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. You know, we talked a little about this um, before we started recording. This audience, I like to say, is more of a beginner Web3 intro, right? So I think right now, I mean, sometimes I have this question up in my mind. What the F is Bitcoin? You know, how can you explain this question right now to someone who is just diving into Web3? Yeah, well, I think maybe I'd start by by saying that... Uh... You know, I, I fun. I see. I see Bitcoin uh, as fundamentally unique and and apart and different from um, you know anything that that people might consider crypto or or Web three. Uh, I see it as a much more foundational uh, technology and development um, for for human civilization. To be honest, um, so I I'll, you'll probably only hear me refer to Bitcoin. I don't. I tend not to use the terms Web three or crypto. I think they can. Uh, confuse confuse the topic to a certain degree but you know in general uh if as i as i understand it you know bitcoin bitcoin is basically a global decentralized permissionless censorship resistant protocol that uh was spun up back in 2009 the white paper was released by Satoshi Nakamoto in 2000, late 2008. And then the first block was mined in early January of 2009. And what it, what it aims to achieve is, is uh, trustless, permissionless, the other terms I used, trustless, permissionless opportunity for um, people to exchange value or, or maybe just information um, but it's it, right now it's considered, uh, you know, value, uh, peer to peer without a trusted third party in the middle. And so, you know, there's, there's ways that it accomplishes that, but you can generate, you know, you have, you have, uh, three, three pillars of the technology as, as I see it, you have, I mean, or the proof of work that, that aims to establish uh the uniqueness of the information and, and protect the network uh and 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 run the protocol add add the blocks to the chain approximately every 10 minutes you have the node network that is also very decentralized and that uh the nodes are running the actual rules of the bitcoin protocol which which we can get into um and then you have the users of the network, the the hodlers, the the ones actually engaging and and sending transactions uh, back and forth. 
And so when you combine those three main pillars, you end up with this global uh, network, this decentralized. Uh, Satoshi Nakamoto is a pseudonym. As far as I know, um, no one knows exactly who he, she, or they were. Uh, they disappeared um, from sight and, and communication soon into Bitcoin's development, I think somewhere in, in mid-2010, uh, once the network seemed to be uh, operating and it had to had gain some steam uh, and haven't, haven't been heard from since. Yeah. And that's also, that's also a very important aspect of it. Why, why, why is it important to, to, to highlight that? I think it's important to highlight that because it really adds to and gives credence to the decentralized na nature of Bitcoin. Um, there's no, there's no proverbial head to chop off. There's no group of investors or project developers per se that, that launched it and, and started it and are involved in it and ultimately might control it. Um, so there's no one, there's no one for the government to come after, you know, there's no Bitcoin company. There's no one for the sec to sue. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's truly just, uh, it exists outside of the current system and it's hard to imagine a way for the current system to gain capture over the network because of how how decentralized it's grown again the nodes are the ones enforcing the rules of bitcoin and you have tens of thousands of them scattered across the globe and ultimately uh you would need to disable and and demolish each and every one of those nodes before you could imagine that you've stopped bitcoin and, and there's actually nodes operating on satellites in outer space so well uh it's i think it, it's really important to especially given some of what we see going on right now in the in the here here i'll, here I'll say the word in the crypto industry with maybe the sec um getting some teeth and and enforcing the laws on the book as they see them and applying uh they can't they can't subpoena Bitcoin. They can't, I mean, they could subpoena Satoshi Nakamoto, but nobody knows who he is. And, you know, the really amazing part, which I think it, it gets, it kind of gets um, a little metaphysical, maybe. You start to wonder, like, holy cow, who, who was this person or this group of people? Because you'd think, I mean, it's hard to imagine anyone not leaving any type of fingerprints. You know, and maybe no one was that interested in finding out who they were back in 2010. But now you'd certainly think that there would be the opportunity to dig back and and put some put some pieces together to to kind of figure out who who this might have been. But as far as I know, uh, they were incredibly uh, successful at completely eliminating ever any opportunity to to trace them back and identify them as an actual person or group of people. And so again, I think what it really comes down to, it just speaks to the decentralized nature of the Bitcoin protocol. And, and that makes it, I think, uh, as powerful as it is and, and also separates it from most of what other people talk about when they're talking about web three or mm -hmm. crypto. I have so many questions. Within all this, well, the the first one, I think, I think going back to why it was created, right? We said two thousand eight. Well, we said two thousand nine. This was right after the financial markets crashed, right? So maybe explain to us. I mean, you're you're, as far as I know, you are not Satoshi Nakamoto, but why would someone create Bitcoin? What was happening back in you know two thousand eight, two thousand nine that someone felt the need that, hey, we want to remove this middleman person, you know, maybe explain that too. Because I think, you know, when I talk about this with my friends, and I just had this conversation the other day, is asking people, we were all talking about Bitcoin and, and, and crypto and whatnot. And, and I asked everyone, you know, do you have these conversations with your friends? And everyone was like, no, like they don't care. Right. And I you know, don't care. So, wow. Right. And you're smiling here because you're like, eh, maybe, my, maybe my friends also don't care. You know, Maybe let's go back to why this actually was created. Because I think for a lot of people, right, we were under the impression 
that this was a scam. This was un- this was impossible to perhaps create. This was unachievable. Why have someone create this? You know, going back to that uh, that time. You know, it might be important to point out uh, first that you know sometimes, especially when you're talking to folks in in crypto or, or Web three, uh, they'll say you know Bitcoin is boomer tech or it's old or it's the first it was the first one and and so it's hard to imagine the first one being the one but actually you know bitcoin was certainly wasn't the first there were a lot of people going back even to the late 80s and throughout the 90s working on working on encryption working on technologies that uh would would provide security and provide the opportunity to get rid of that, that trusted third party in the middle um, it's just Bitcoin was the first one that worked. It put it put all these different pieces together in a way that so far has seemed very successful and has worked. And so I think that's important to keep in mind. Now, getting back to the time when it was released in in late 2008, and and then the first block being mined in, in early 2009. You're absolutely right. You had the great financial crisis. I think you you know in retrospect we. we for anyone paying attention, you notice how the government basically just printed money, more or less, issued debt out of nowhere and and bailed out the banking industry and um, the the insurance companies that were insuring those banks. And and you know maybe maybe your average homeowner or your average uh, pleb got burned in the process, and and no one was really held accountable. And so what. So Bitcoin was released in that context and actually in the first, in the Genesis block, as they refer to it, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto inscribed, you know, the following quote, which was chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. And, you know, what they were speaking to was this idea of the money as we've known it, certainly in our lifetimes, but even when you start to think about it going back throughout human history, uh, money as a technology, there's always been some someone that, that can be in control of the supply and in control of the issuance. And I think when, when you look at money that way, uh, you start to maybe reflect on phrases like absolute power corrupts absolutely. And- well, Perhaps that's true. What is the mechanism? Well, I think the mechanism is when you have the absolute power, you are then in control of the money and the money supply. And so if you have um, a bunch of, you know, if you have people using a monetary technology, like let's just go to glass beads, right? Because that used to be a monetary technology. It was the best that they had. There was some type of scarcity to it. It took time and effort to make the glass beads and that the glass beads reflected that and they could be traded and bartered um, for other goods. And, and uh, there was just an inherent, that's kind of what gave them the value some, some level of scarcity, some effort and work required to create them. But then if someone can just come up with a manufacturing process that makes it, you know, a thousand times easier to manufacture the same glass beads, glass beads, and then they can, you know, essentially start to just dump them on the market. Well, now each individual's glass bead becomes less valuable. And you can you can think of of paper, fiat, currency, all the, you know, whether it's the dollar or the yuan or the peso or whatever. If someone has the ability to create more units of that currency or that money essentially out of thin air with very little work involved then it devalues the currency that everybody else holds. And so what when Bitcoin comes into play or, or how, you know, why, how does Bitcoin solve that problem? Well, you have to look at the rules of Bitcoin and that's maybe where you start to get into some of the aspects of Bitcoin that people might be familiar with. You know, the hard cap of 21 million. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin in existence in the universe as we know it. Uh, each Bitcoin is subdividable by 100 million units that are called Satoshis. Uh, so you can kind of think like a dollar has 100 cents, 
of Bitcoin has 100 million Satoshis. So there's basically eight decimal points behind Bitcoin and, um, and that, that, that can never change. And that's, and that can never change because those rules are enforced by the node operators. Fair. And you, again, you'd have to get every node operator to agree to change that limit, which is basically impossible. That would never happen. And, and why would they even do that in the first place? Because you would be essentially devaluing, you know, if they're running a node, they're probably interested in the network and they, you know, to, to say you wanted to double the amount of Bitcoin from 21 million to 42 million, well, you're just decreasing the value of their Bitcoin by about half. And so they have no incentive to change the rules. And so that 21 million is, you can think of as a very hard cap. Uh, which is probably it's the first time in human history we've actually come across or developed or invented or discovered um, anything that is truly scarce and truly finite. You know, even gold, uh, you can mine gold. Every, everyone knows that and it increases in supply at about 2% a year, more or less. And if the value of gold goes up, miners are going to mine more gold. You know, if it goes down, they're probably mine less gold. Uh, and it's the same, it's the same for basically everything. Um, housing prices go up, they're going to make more houses. Um, and yet Bitcoin can't change. And then to get to that 21 million Bitcoin, you have a fixed supply, you have a, a fixed issuance schedule. And this is kind of where the mining comes in. And so, uh, basically every block that's added to the Bitcoin blockchain which includes the most recent transactions and their fees, the, the miner that discovers or creates that block, unlocks that block, um, they receive a reward for the energy that they had to put in to, to accomplish that through proof of work. And they receive a fixed issuance of, of new Bitcoin or, or you know, it's, it's still part of that 21 million hard cap, but it hasn't been placed into circulation yet. And so that block brings it into circulation. And right now, for example, uh, every 10, approximately every 10 minutes, it's not exact, it varies, but it's an average every 10 minutes. Um, the miner that, 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 that gets the block gets 6.25 new Bitcoin or unlocked Bitcoin issued Bitcoin plus the fees associated with the transactions that were part of that block as their reward for expending the energy. Um, now, every four years, that issuance is cut in half. So back in approximately April or May of 2020, the issuance per block used to be 12.5, right? 6.25 times two. Uh, and then approximately four years before that, it was 25. And then four years before that, now you're in the first epoch of, of Bitcoin operating and it was 50 Bitcoin on average every 10 minutes. And, and, and that doesn't amount, that doesn't depend on how many people are mining Bitcoin. Um, if the price of Bitcoin tomorrow were to double or triple, uh, then there'd be a lot more interest in mining Bitcoin to get those 6.25 Bitcoin because now it's worth two to three X in, in dollar terms. So let's just say every, you know, everyone wants to start mining Bitcoin and they're there, even if they can, even if they can find the machines and they can find a place to plug them in with the electricity and they do it and the, and the global hash rate of Bitcoin doubles or triples. Well, then there's one last piece and I hope I'm not getting too tight, but what's called the difficulty adjustment. Okay. And that happens approximately every two weeks, you know, it's actually based on blocks. Every 2016 blocks, the difficulty adjusts. And what that means is if there's more people mining Bitcoin, they make it more difficult to find the Bitcoin. If, if there's less people mining Bitcoin, they make it a little easier to find. They, I'm saying they, it's the algorithm. Okay, uh, I was like, who's they? To, <laughs> yeah, there is no they. Uh, it, the, it's, it's, the, it's the program, it's the algorithm, it's the protocol. Uh, it makes it a little easier and it's based on that 10 minutes, right? So every 2001, uh, 2016 blocks, the algorithm takes a look at the average block time. And if it's over 10 minutes, it makes it, the difficulty adjusts downward and makes it a little easier. If it's, if it's less than 10 minutes, it makes it more difficult 
to, to try to get to that 10 minute difficulty adjustment. So what that does is it keeps that, that issuance basically fixed. So right now, 6.25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes on average, that's about 900 a day. So it just maintains that. And even if, even if a huge groundswell of people start trying to mine the Bitcoin, it's just going to become more difficult in no more than two weeks. And you'll be right back to the same fixed supply issuance. And so if you carry that out every four years, dividing in half, you basically, it's, um, it's a, an asymptotic curve <laughs> and it approaches that 21 million hard cap. And so just to, to wrap it up there, the last, the last Satoshi would be mined uh, sometime around 2140. Basically, the real importance of that is the scarcity aspect and the concept that no one, no one can change the total supply of Bitcoin and you can't even change how quickly it's issued. This is. Uh, and it's truly remarkable. It's the only time we've ever had uh, a, a monetary technology like or any technology like that, any commodity like that. You can start to think of it as a money that no one controls and it has a fixed supply. And that starts to, to, to come, or that starts to speak to the importance of why, um, why Satoshi was so interested in sharing with this with the world back in, in 2009, because he saw, he saw the, the games that were being played with the money supply. And it wasn't just unique to that time. You start to look back in time, you know, clipping gold coins, the glass beads example, you know, anytime there was a monetary technology someone always found a way to create more of it more or less for for free or for out of nothing and while while everybody else was having to work for it yeah. and that's where you get the corruption that's where you get the 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 power dynamics that ultimately <laughs> tend to lead to civilization collapse yeah and and maybe that's what's so special and exciting about bitcoin is maybe we finally found something where it's not susceptible to that and, and maybe that would enable humans to really um, expand beyond kind of this growth collapse, growth collapse uh, that we've been dealing with for, for recorded history. I was going to say, too, I mean, what was going on in 2008, 2009, I'm not sure what we're living in right now, but it's, you know, the, the patterns are s sort of similar, right? I mean, in yeah, Canada, we absolutely. Printed, you know, in Canada, we printed a lot of money during, uh, you know, we called it the, the pandemic. You know, I don't want YouTube to cancel me, so I'll say the pandemic. Um, sure. But, you know, and I think that's probably why too, I mean, even for myself, why I started getting interested in this was, was because we were seeing what was going on with our governments and whatnot. And why do you think right now, it almost seems like, maybe it's just in my world, because I'm, I'm recently in this, in this world, but why is it... Um, why are we talking about Bitcoin right now? Why, why it seems like it's more popular now than ever or, you know, why? Yeah. Well, uh, well, I think you got a couple of reasons. Um, you know, maybe the obvious one is just, you have the, the network dynamics that we've seen through social media and other technology adoption where, you know, just it's a function of people learning about it and telling their friends. And so you're seeing that uh, expand, uh, and maybe it, ex maybe it expands more or less, uh, irrespective of kind of what's going on at any particular moment in time. It's just the nature of how technology is adopted and how, how networks grow. Um, but specifically to today, I think, you know, you're starting to realize, or I think people are starting to realize, you know, the, the idea of a sound money that's outside of anyone's control with a fixed supply. And so that's part of it. Um, I think. I think importantly, you're also starting to see um, the censorship-resistant aspect to it that I mentioned um, become become more clear to people. And you, what I mean by that is, when you take Bitcoin into self custody, which is really important, okay, buying Bitcoin on an exchange and and leaving it there, uh, really all you've done is you've paid someone to tell you that you have. And you don't actually have it. And we're just seeing now, you know, with an example of Prime Trust, uh, they were holding people's Bitcoin. Well, it turns out they didn't have the Bitcoin. And so, you know, taking personal self-custody of Bitcoin is incredibly important. It's, it, it, 
it's almost it's almost more important than buying the Bitcoin. You know, you really haven't accomplished much with buying Bitcoin if you're leaving it with somebody else because now you've just reintroduced a layer of trust. And the whole point of Bitcoin is to eliminate that trusted third party, or that's one of the main points. And and the other aspect of it is very easy to sit, take self custody, and uh, you know you get a hardware wallet, you send the Bitcoin from the exchange to the hardware wallet, you record your seed phrase on steel or what have you. You don't, you don't obviously you don't want to take a picture of it, you don't want to put it on a Word doc or a Google doc. You don't want. I mean, that is the keys to your safe and. Um, so you want to keep that protected and and secure over the years. So I would always recommend stamping your seed phrase into a, a stainless steel plate. Once you have the Bitcoin in your own wallet with your private keys secured, nobody can take that from you, right? Like it's impossible. It's impossible. Uh, nobody can hack the blockchain and move the Bitcoin from the address without your private keys. It is absolutely impossible. It's never happened. Now, certainly you could be coerced into giving up your private keys. Uh, there's any number of creative ways you could imagine that happening. And some of them sound pretty horrific. But at the end of the day, if you have a bar of gold, someone can take that from you. If you have even a house, you know, someone can take that from you or, or they can just tax it away from you with property taxes. Uh, Bitcoin, when you start to think about it in self-custody, might be the only property rights that you truly have that nobody can take from you and you can take them with you wherever you want to go and so just imagine you know you had a hundred thousand dollars worth of gold and now it's time to leave now it's time to go somewhere else um what are you going to do yeah you, you everybody yeah right you're going to carry it uh you're going to carry it to the airport and just tell them hey i'll see you guys later i'm taking this with me everybody knows it, it just sounds crazy Everybody knows you can't even take you can't even take a pile of cash across the border with you. You can't take gold. You can't take your house, obviously. So you probably can't take your stock portfolio. You know, maybe there's some very financially privileged people in the world that could manage um, their their stock portfolio in one jurisdiction and then have access to it in a totally separate jurisdiction. But you know, that's not that's not a guarantee certainly and for the common person it's it's probably out of reach and so you start to think about what what property do you truly even own that's in your control that nobody can take from you and it's bitcoin and so i think you know you saw it with maybe the canadian trucker protest yeah uh you saw it with um some other examples of of property more or less being being confiscated from people or access to their money being confiscated from them and that is one of the main attributes of bitcoin is that nobody can keep you from your bitcoin once you have it in self-custody and nobody can can prevent it can prevent you from sending it to someone else once you have it and so that's completely new <laughs> and i think people are starting to see what's happening to banks in turkey and lebanon where they're being locked out of getting their own, you know, they're robbing the bank to get their own money. And of course it's not there, but, um, and, and we talked about the Canadian truckers, you know, they're just starting to see the, all the, all the middlemen that are not, maybe not so trustworthy, uh, to begin with. And so I think that's probably a big part of the interest in Bitcoin and the adoption of Bitcoin is people seeing how, uh, you know, what is money and what are property rights? And if they really, if they really start to understand Bitcoin, it's going to stand out as the only real option that, that makes any sense. Yeah. So J Justin, obviously I know that you're, you're, you're a miner as well. What got you into Bitcoin mining? Maybe explain to us what Bitcoin mining is. Cause I will say my aha moment when it comes to like Bitcoin and, and, and this whole new world, let's call it that was when, I know it sounds crazy, but I was one of those people who really thought that the bank had little box with like my money in it, you know, like, yeah. and then when I realized, wait, they don't have that. It's just like some online number. Um, that was my aha moment. So what was it for you and what got you into Bitcoin mining? 
a similar story maybe to most in terms of getting into Bitcoin. It was just a matter of having a friend over the years or a couple of friends tap you on the shoulder here or there and maybe not give them much of the time of day. But then at some point you're like, all right, all right, what are you talking about here? Uh, let's, let's figure this out. So I had that, I had that moment and, 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 and bought Bitcoin and, and started to understand it there. But it wasn't soon after, you know, with my day job, you mentioned working at the electric utility industry. I was focused on new technologies on the grid. I was focused on demand response. And with that, you know, that generally included like smart thermostats, uh, EV chargers, electric vehicle chargers, um, battery storage, and everything that we were trying to accomplish with that uh, by, you know, maybe controlling people's thermostats when it was really hot or really cold out to have them use like less electricity. Uh, I realized that Bitcoin mining as a technology was able to do that at scale and uh, much, much more effectively than any of the programs or rate designs that I had been working on. And so what I mean by that is that, you know, basically Bitcoin mining, uh, I, I kind of break it down into three, three aspects of it that make it truly unique as a, as a customer or as a, as a, a load at, on the electric utility is it's a location agnostic. So basically it doesn't require much infrastructure to, to operate. It just requires electricity and a low bandwidth internet connection for the most part. And so it can go anywhere. So you can, you could, you know, theoretically you could put it anywhere on the system. It's scale agnostic. So it could be just a few miners or it could be tens of thousands of miners. You know, it could be a few, 40 kilowatts or it could be 1.2 gigawatts. Um, and that's really interesting. And then maybe most importantly is it's time agnostic. And that gets to the demand response capabilities of it is that it doesn't matter at any particular hour of the year. Again, theoretically, and, and we've seen it, we've seen examples of it. Miners will be willing to shut down uh, some of their mining operations or all of their mining operations and return the power that they were consuming back to the grid to meet other needs. And, and so that's, and then, and then they could keep it off for any particular amount of time. You know, when we were, when we were controlling people's thermostats, uh, yeah, they're not going to be, especially on the hottest or coldest days of the year, they're not very interested in having you keep it off for a weekend, right? Like you got, you got a couple hours max and, but Bitcoin mining, it can shut down and it could stay off for the duration of a week long storm if he needed it to. And that's very special. And then it could turn right back on once, once that was, once that was what made sense for the grid. And so I really started to see it as this very unique technology, this very unique industry that, uh, you know, the reason I was looking at demand response is we, we need more flexibility as an electric utility. I'm not with the electric utility anymore, but, um, uh, we, they, they need this flexible demand to come on the system in order to balance out the load, uh, mainly from the influx of new unreliable generation like wind and solar. Uh, but also just the history of electric utilities has always been balancing load, customer load with generation. It's always, it's ele electricity for the most part can't be stored. It's gotta be consumed the instant it's created. So you always had to balance the generation with the customer load. Well, and because we're losing control of the generation with technologies like wind and solar, we're also gaining the opportunity to control the customer load through internet connected devices and now Bitcoin mining. And anyway, that's, that's why it's such an important, uh, technology because the utilities absolutely need it. And we can, we can get into that a little bit more, but that was, that was really the aha moment for me. And I became very interested in Bitcoin mining. Uh, I spun up a study. I was with one of the largest electric utilities in the country. And so I spun up a study with them to look into the, you know, I, I knew it, I believed it, but still you have to, you have to go through the process. You have to do the due diligence. You have to socialize the concept. You have to build backup documentation of, of why this is a good idea and, and how it's going to work. And so I started a process with that, a formal study with an outside consultant, which is still going on. Um, but then, you know, now I've, 
seeing all the activity, seeing the capital that's going into Bitcoin mining industry and the excitement around it, uh, some of it to do with the strategic integration into the grid, um, some of it to do with rural revitalization. You know, that kind of gets to the location agnostic part of it as it can go into rural America where most industry seems that has left and then maybe isn't so interested in coming back. Um, so, so yeah, now I'm with an actual infrastructure company that builds out, uh, energy infrastructure for some of the largest, largest mining campuses in the world. Um, and yeah, that's, uh, maybe I'll stop there. I was going to say, so you're still mining. I'm assuming it's also profitable, right? Like for those, like we, we hear about it all the time. People are like, oh, th- these miners are doing it. They're making, they're making a buttload of money. Um, you know, <laughs> what, 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 what does that look like? I don't know if you can give us some numbers, but you know, just give us like a, you know, so you're mining it. Um, I know you gave us a few numbers before, but you know, is it profitable? Should everyone yeah, go mine? Well, How's that? Everyone, <laughs> but the thing is, I'm sure if everyone goes to mine, yeah, we're gonna. Well, yeah, that, that's part of it. You highlighted it. Basically, the profitability of mining comes down to a lot of factors, and and each one of them is is pretty pretty dynamic and and volatile. Except for the issuance, you can always count on the issuance to be what it will. Uh, so because that, because that issuance is fixed of new Bitcoin, if the, if the amount of global hash rate or the amount of people mining on the network goes up, the share of any particular miners daily issuance of Bitcoin goes down, (laughs) right? Because if there's more people drinking out of the same milkshake, everyone's going to get a little less milkshake. Um, because there's, there's the same amount of milkshake it's fixed. Um, so then how does that, how does that ever make sense? Well, because maybe the dollar value of the Bitcoin goes up. So now everyone's getting a little less Bitcoin, but it's worth more because the price went up. Um, so those are kind of the main, main dynamics that drive, uh, the value of the Bitcoin in dollar terms that, you would be receiving from mining. And then the third really important aspect of it, which is maybe what uh, keeps it from being a great idea for everybody, is your cost of electricity. Because that's on the other side of the balance sheet, right? What we just talked about was what's the value that's coming out of the miner? Well, the main, nearly the only input for mining once you have the, the machines is is electricity you know you don't you don't have really many other costs at all except for some some operation and maintenance costs so it's really important to have um the cheapest electricity possible or the cheapest energy possible and so if you're someone that has access to cheap uh energy even if it's not so reliable if it's cheap um then then maybe mining is a good idea for you. And so that's what we're starting to see with, with miners go out to the flare gas coming out of oil wells. And instead of that gas, just that methane being vented into the atmosphere and lit on fire, which is, I mean, it's better than it just floating up into the atmosphere without lighting it on fire, but it's still not perfect. It's pretty dirty. Um, you instead pump that methane through an engine create electricity, mine the Bitcoin, boom, send it to the internet, send it to cyberspace, and you're done. And now you've eliminated, you know, 98% of the emissions from that that methane uh, coming out of the oil well or or a landfill. Uh, but you're just seeing you're seeing Bitcoin start to attack those cheap s- stranded energy sources. You know, another example of that is maybe negative pricing that you've seen. Uh, in places with a high penetration of renewable or, as I call it, unreliable generation like wind and solar, yeah. where they're producing on a clear, breezy day in the spring and generating some of the most electricity at any one time that they'll do all year, but yet no one's needs it, no one's using it. And so now the prices go negative. And um, but so that's a perfect opportunity for Bitcoin mining. I mean, you can't get free energy is good uh negative energy is even better negative price energy is even better and so um it's really if you have the opportunity to get access to that type of electricity that type of energy that's when it really starts to make sense if you're the average homeowner that is paying the average rate of electricity of 
you know, 10 to 12 to 14 cents a kilowatt hour, it's probably not going to make sense um, with a couple of caveats. One is if you just want to do it and you want to get rich Bitcoin. <laughs> no, it's not getting rich. Yeah, not yet. It's the long game. But if you want to get Bitcoin that nobody knows that you have for the most part, they call it non-KYC, uh, non-KYC Bitcoin, and, and you're really interested in mining and you don't care if you if you're spending a little more per Satoshi or not, um, it can be a great fun hobby. I do that as well, uh, or I know a friend that does. Um, and, and then the other aspect of it is if you can do something with the heat, you know, the other byproduct of putting the electricity through the machine, the, the main product is, is the Satoshis, but those are digital and cyberspace. The other, the other product of the electricity is heat coming out and then a little bit of noise. If you can take advantage of the heat, well, now, now you're talking. That's, um, you know, I, I heated up my townhome all winter with some mining in my garage, three-story townhome. Well, wow. and didn't, didn't need to turn on the heat. And so if you think about that, basically, um, instead of turning on the electricity to heat my home by just <laughs> a resistance coil or lighting gas on fire, uh, I put it through a Bitcoin miner instead. So you, so you can either think of it as getting free Satoshis because you're going to be using that electricity anyway to heat your home. Or you can think of it as getting the heat for free because you were going to be mining the Satoshis anyway. So either way, I mean, it's the same thing. But if you have opportunities like that, yeah. or maybe a greenhouse, you know, you start stacking up these these value propositions. And that's when it can get it get exciting and really start to make sense. Now, just the last thing I'd say is that the growth of the Bitcoin network in terms of mining the global hash rate, it's it's it is bounded by physics in the real world, right? There's only so many mining machines and they can only make new ones so quickly. Uh, and there's also only so much capacity, so much energy, so much electricity. You know, if you wanted to plug in 50 megawatts of mining, there's going to be very few spots in the country where you could just easily find that and sign up and get mining. And so what you can, what you can see what's happened in the past and what I'm kind of hoping happens again is that the price, but the price of Bitcoin is, is, is unbounded. It's, it's more just a function of supply and demand and network growth. And that can all happen very, very quickly. It's not necessarily bounded by laws of, of physics and, and material constraints. And so you can see the price of Bitcoin, you know, double, triple, quadruple, 10 X or whatever, let's say in a year, wouldn't that be great? But the global hash rate, it can't, it can't go. And so now the value of your Satoshis, it can grow, but it's limited in how fast it can grow. Meanwhile, the price can, can just go up. And so the value of your Satoshis coming out of your machine can increase significantly. It's not going to last forever, but it can increase significantly at any one point in time. And that's where you see, you know, mining machines. Let's say right now, the average industrial mining machine is like $2,000, for example. Well, that same mining machine could be worth ten to $12,000. If we had 150K Bitcoin, you know, hypothetically Lizette. boom now now my now the value of that machine went from two thousand to twelve thousand dollars um and maybe i want to sell it maybe i don't but um you know so it's it's yeah it's not a straightforward answer but there are a lot of things to think about if you're interested if you needed the heat if you wanted to do it because you don't want to buy them off the exchange and have all your personal details attached to the bitcoin that you have um it's it's fun. I like it. Yeah. Well, I was you. You made me think too, because we also we also talk, and a lot of people deem well, this is not environmentally friendly. But you've you you know, <laughs> you've already given me your reaction. What do you say to those people who say Bitcoin does not help the environment? And say you know how I guess how many tequila sodas have I had at that point? <laughs> um, you know, I think at the end of the day, I would just say that they're misinformed. They don't understand what they're talking about, to be honest. They're they're making a very straightforward conclusion that energy use equals bad and that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, him, human civilization has only advanced because of our ability to harness and channel energy more effectively, more efficiently. 
uh, you know, us being on these electric laptops with the internet and data centers all over the place is an example of that. And so, uh, they're, they're probably passing a moral judgment as well, that Bitcoin is worthless and they're not acknowledging the property rights that it might be providing to, uh, you know, a female entrepreneur in Afghanistan that has no access to banking or, or, um, the ability to own any type of other property or, or, you know, just in the global South in general. So I'd say it's a very financial privileged view to, to conclude that Bitcoin is not worth the energy that it's using. And then, and then I would say that, you know, if you actually care about reducing emissions, if you actually are concerned with greenhouse gases or what have you, Bitcoin mining is probably the most important and effective technology that we've ever had access to in order to achieve a decarbonized grid, in order to reduce emissions. There, I just mentioned the flare gas at the oil wells. Well, the flare, the fact that they're lighting this gas on fire, that's the only evidence you need to understand that there's nothing better to do with it. These are very smart, industrial, entrepreneurial, engineering-minded people. If they had something better to do with the gas that made economic sense, they would do it. But they don't, so they light on fire. And it's dirty. Well, Bitcoin mining now is the first technology that has come around and says, yeah, boom, I can go there. I can eliminate those emissions. So we can, we're looking at the opportunity for Bitcoin mining to single-handedly reduce the methane emissions across the globe in ways that were never even thought possible up to a couple of years ago. And then the same thing comes around when you're talking about, you know, I, I actually have a problem with integrating more wind and solar on the grid. I don't think it's the best use of our scarce time and attention and capital as humans. I think we should be doing nuclear instead. But even if that was the plan, which it is at the moment, to do more wind and solar, you need Bitcoin mining. You cannot, you are, we are already running into hard, walls on the transmission system and the distribution system of solar and wind causing real challenges. Uh, you got the negative pricing I mentioned, you know, that negative pricing that was, that's going on, not only is it just, it's, it, it's messing up the markets. It, it's sending cockeyed price signals and, or maybe, maybe they're right, but it's just, <laughs> what sort of wind developer or solar farm developer is going to say, oh, cool. I can't wait to build the next 50 megawatt project knowing that 30% of the time I'm going to be selling into a negatively priced market. No, they're not going to do it. So, uh, but even from the physics of it, you know, the interconnection queues and backlogs for solar are immense because they're running into very real limitations on the grid. Bitcoin mining, you can solve those issues fairly quickly, certainly relative to anything else on the table right now. And so I would just say there's so much nuance to it. There's so many details and ultimately Bitcoin mining, if you really start to understand it, you really start to understand how networks or how energy networks, how electric grids operate, you recognize that it's probably the most environmentally friendly technology that we've ever had access to. And then the last thing I'd say is Bitcoin mining at the, at right now is using a, a fraction of the global, a less than a fraction. It's a rounding error in terms of how much energy is used on a daily or an annual basis. You know, it's less than one half of 1% of all the energy consumed on the globe. Most of that energy is wasted and, or, you know, a significant part of it's just wasted to begin with. And, you know, if you're concerned about Bitcoin mining being environmentally bad, you're just, you're being absurd because, you know, how do you feel about Pornhub? How do you feel about Netflix? How do you feel about, you know, people driving to <laughs> wherever, the, you know, driving to Walmart yeah. and buying shit they don't need, you know, like, but, but who are we to cast moral judgments on any of that? And so it's just, I would say you haven't thought very much yeah. about it. And, and hopefully no one listens to your opinion. <laughs> well, Justin, I like, I like when you mentioned uh, this Afghan woman who doesn't have access to maybe potentially a bank account. I think a lot of the times in North America, we take for granted the accessibility that we have, right, in terms of being a man or a woman. But maybe, uh, you know, maybe touch on that as well. You know, the importance of having this sort of decentralized technology that is allowing other people around the globe access to potentially money or things that they can, you know, that they can own, right? Like, 
I think a lot of the times when, when I talk about this with my girlfriends, they don't see the need because they're comfortable. They're like, I'm good. I've got financially like- privileged. Financially privileged is what we call it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, so, no, 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 yeah, but you're right. That's, think- that's the word, right? Financially privileged. So what would you tell someone today, you know, who is like, you know, I don't see, I don't see the point of this, you know, and I always think about those, those, the, the, those other countries or even myself, because like you said, right, we've seen it in America just this year alone, people going and running to the bank to pull out money. I mean, this is not something so absurd. We've seen it happen this year alone. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you know, the, the inflation rates that they tell us of you know, what up as high as almost 9%, I think, and maybe it's down closer to 6% or whatever. But, you know, I think we're all feeling that maybe inflation in real life is a little higher than that. But that's that's with one of the strongest, if not the strongest currency on the planet. You know, you have a lot of countries where the inflation rate is is much, much higher. And, you know, Argentina, for example, it's it's a huge country with millions and millions of people. And they have an inflation rate of 100% plus, you know. And so what are they going to do? Who, who, what are they going to do? They, even, even if the banks had their money in the bank, which they don't, then it's still losing value at a rate of, you know, it's still worth half as much a year later. And, you know, yeah, you could buy a property, but they can just tax it. Uh, and, and so what are you going to do? How, how do you protect yourself from that type of inflation? You're in a country like Venezuela where it's just, or, or, Zimbabwe or Lebanon, I mean, forget about it. So having access, you know, and, and forget about even the, the fact of like, well, checking account, can I send money from point A to point B? Can I buy a coffee? It's like, can you just preserve your monetary wealth throughout for the next year or two? Because otherwise it's going to evaporate and it's gone. And so having access to Bitcoin for those people in those types of situations in a way that's permissionless and censorship resistant. So there's, the, there's no government that can really, all they need is a cell phone and, and the know-how. There's no government that can truly stop them from doing it. Maybe they can, maybe they can mine Bitcoin somehow. Um, they, can, they might really have to get into the peer-to-peer network. We're seeing that in Nigeria, you know, where the youth, they're, they're, they're adopting it at record pace because they don't have a choice. You know, they're in a position where they don't have that financial privilege of being able to consider, hmm, should I buy Tesla stock? Should I buy, you know, real estate in Sonoma County? Should I buy, you know, this this collectible art piece? Maybe, you know, I should just buy the four, you know, the uh, S&P 500. They don't have access to any of that. What do they have access to? Maybe they can buy gold, but someone can just hit them over the head and take their gold. Uh and you probably can't buy, you can't buy $5 worth of gold, you know, but you can buy $5 worth of Bitcoin once a week, once a month, you know, it's just, it's the perfect opportunity to give people access to a monetary technology that nobody can take away from them and that they can send across the globe. And it's, it can't be, I mean, I, I can only assume how empowering it might be. And just maybe the last example I'd bring is, you know, I think back in August when we had the the issue with withdrawing from Afghanistan, you know, you know, maybe a lot of your viewers saw that plane, that you know, C thirty cargo jet that was just filled to the brim with, I, I think about you know, hundreds of people, and you just look at each one of them, right, and you say, okay, what if they had any property or any money, which is a big if to begin with, but if they did, you know, it's almost certain they don't have it on the plane. If they did have that you know, $10,000 worth of gold. Well, they don't have it now. It either, they either left it behind, it got taken by the Taliban or, you know, the army took it from them when they were going through the checkpoint. I mean, whatever, it's not there. Um, so you can only hope that maybe a few of them had some Bitcoin stored up in their head because and they were the lucky ones, right? They seemingly were the lucky ones to get out of that situation um, with their lives, but not much more than that. And so you start to think about those situations that unfortunately a lot of people around the world are forced into. And that's you know, another really powerful aspect of Bitcoin is you know, and another part of the financial privilege. We can't imagine a situation where we're forced to leave tomorrow or we might die. And what are you going to take with you 
in that case, understanding that anything you don't take with you is no longer yours. Yeah. So it's really powerful when you think of it in those terms. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, be- before we get going, you know, obviously I want to talk about um, these Bitcoin ETFs, right? We're seeing America finally decide or choose to kind of dive into Bitcoin. What do you make of this? Is this a good or bad thing? I've been seeing many different takes. I want to get your take on this. A potential BlackRock, now we're hearing Fidelity, Bitcoin ETF. Is this good or bad? You know, I'm not sure. I I tend to think, well, here's something I'll say is that everything's good for Bitcoin. You know, (laughs) it doesn't doesn't matter in the long run. Everything's going to be good for Bitcoin. Um, It's what they say, right? Bad publicity is sometimes good publicity. (laughs) All publicity is good publicity. <laughs> there you yeah. Go. Um, you know, so I think I think there's an aspect of that. Now, in terms of, you know, I just I think I think it, it could be seen in a positive light in terms of giving people that might not otherwise consider Bitcoin access to Bitcoin. Although these are probably you know if they're if they're managing their money with BlackRock, they probably are in that financially privileged category right up near the top. So I'm not too worried about them. And, and having access to Bitcoin. But uh, you know what? That's fine. Um, we'll see if they get approved. Uh, it seems like everyone's pretty uh, confident that BlackRock would not have filed if they didn't. They, they had a very, very high likelihood of getting for pro- approved. Their track record with ETFs that they filed is some absurd. You know, it's like 99.9% effective. They've only had one out of 580 or something that was ever not approved. And then they, they made a couple tweaks to it and refiled it and it got approved. So, um, you know, that is interesting to see those types of players maybe come into the space. I would say if, if people are concerned that they're going to be able to take over Bitcoin or co-op Bitcoin, I'd say that's, um, you know, it's fine if they think that, but I think that's pretty, <laughs> pretty naive of them and, you know, better, better for us if that's what they want to try to do. Cause I don't think it's going to happen, but yeah, it's a very interesting time right now, especially when you consider what the SEC, the actions they just took against Binance Is and it, Coinbase. You know, I'd re- it, it it kind of speaks to why I just like to stay on bull, stack sats, take them into self custody, and not really worry about too much of anything else because you know the SEC might be coming for these projects. Maybe they claimed they were decentralized. And now there is a they when we say they claim they were decentralized. And the SEC is going to find them and tell them to knock it off. And so I think we're kind of starting to see the the, the grumblings and murmurs around those types of actions. Um, and maybe, maybe they were trying to clear the way for someone like BlackRock or these other legacy institutions to come in. Who knows? But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I just, I'm interested in acquiring Bitcoin for myself and my family and my future. And I try not to get too emotionally caught up in, in whatever else is going on. I was going to say too, you know, for beginners, I hear a lot of, Hey, what about Bitcoin cash and all these Bitcoin knockoffs? Let's call them that. <laughs> what would you say to someone, you know, just before we go, what do you, what would you tell someone right now? Right. Forget Bitcoin cash, forget what the banks are telling you. Right. Like, what piece of advice would you give, Justin? I'd say the, I'd say my advice is that the most pristine asset that anyone can truly own in the world is, is Bitcoin, and it's and, and it's verifiably scarce, absolutely scarce, first time in human history. And these other, you know, basically in that context, I view everything over the long term going to zero against Bitcoin. Definitely something like Bitcoin Cash or Satoshi Vision or whatever these forks were. You can just see it. Look at the chart. It's not going to change. Uh, I'd apply. I'd say that's probably true for every other crypto as well. Um, to the extent that it's not true over a short time frame, it's probably a pump and dump scam. And you're probably, if you're lucky enough to get in on the front end, the only reason it might work out for you is because you're dumping on someone else that's unfortunately falling for the hype machine behind you. Um, and there's probably real no economic value happening there, uh, regardless of whatever the marketing says. Um, and, and they're, they're probably, they're not decentralized. They're, they're centralized. It's just a software company that's executing probably a poor strategy. So I don't need to say too much more about that, but I just say that 
yeah, over over time, even even real estate, gold, all this monetary premium that we've applied to other instruments, um, because maybe our actual dollars as monetary technology were not very good. So real estate's been monetized, obviously gold's monetized, you know, I think all of that is going to over time start to collapse into Bitcoin. And so that's why I say, um, well, everything's good for Bitcoin and everything's going to zero against Bitcoin over time. So, well, you know, if you, if you want to gamble, if you want to try to pull off some swing trades here and there, like more power to you, just recognize that that's what you're doing. If you're interested in saving your money over the long term and providing yourself peace of mind just stick to bitcoin and everything else will work out i love that you should like this should be an ad stick to bitcoin <laughs> i love that just simplified my life <laughs> all right well look i will say i uh, i'm so grateful that you came on the show to explain this to us you know for those newbies out there i'm sure you may have a thousand more questions so what i will say to everyone is drop them down below Let's try to get Justin to come back on the show to answer some of these questions because God knows, right? There's, we can go in and talk about this for many, many hours, but we won't today. But if you do have Bitcoin questions, you know, even to figure out, I use Ledger right now as my hardware wallet. I'll also put, you know, my affiliate link down below. My, you know, the juiciest conversations are happening up in my DM. So feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, on YouTube, on TikTok, on Instagram, on Facebook. Come find me. I'm even on LinkedIn. Come find me. And, uh, and you know, let's get this conversation. Let's keep this conversation going. These episodes come out every Monday. So feel free to hit the bell, like, subscribe, and please send us your Bitcoin questions so we can answer them in a future episode. I will see you guys next time. Bye.